Hello and welcome to Fans, the podcast hosted by me, Sachin Akrani, in which I speak to people I like, find interesting or both about being football fans. And joining me for this episode to talk, well, to talk about a range of things, including his love for Manchester United, it's Sanjay Bandari. Sanjay, how are you? I'm good, thanks. Thank you for inviting me on. No, pleasure to have you on. Pleasure to have you on. We've, uh, like most... uh, Relation, I don't think relationships the right word, but most interactions uh, in the world these days, we know each other quite well. I think of Twitter, we um, exchange messages regularly on that. Uh, I think we had one yesterday, didn't we? We're recording this, we should say, on the 22nd of March, Tuesday, 22nd of March. I'm quite, I don't know where you are, where I am in Beckenham, South London, quite a nice, pleasant morning. Sun's coming no. through the windows, looks nice where you are as well. Yeah, on the other side of the M25 in, in Potters Bar, Enfield Way in Hertfordshire, it's yeah, sun shining here as well. Yeah. Excellent, very good. Yeah, and just saying, yeah, we had a little interaction yesterday on the back of a very amusing clip. I don't know if you've ever seen it before, I am, of a caller calling the talk sport to say that. I think it's from early noughties, probably, the, the anti-Niemi, the, uh, who was goalkeeper of hearts of Midlothian at the time, should be picked for Scotland. And to present that, to point out to him that he was Finnish. Uh, and then the caller said... He's not finished. He's really good. And then the presenter would say, no, he's finished, as in he's from Finland. So I thought it was very amusing. We had a little, a little interaction about that. But no, delighted to have you on. Um, as I said in the introduction, there's it's kind of a lot to talk about, really. So, yeah, you're a big United fan. You, you tweet regularly about that as well. We'll have, we'll have a chat about that. But the kind of the other reason I wanted to get you on, really, is, um, is to talk about two other things. Um, as I said, you're, you're chairman of Kick It Out, which is the independent charity that campaigns and fights for equality and inclusion in English football, very well established, very well known, very important organisation in this country. So absolutely want to talk to you about that and kind of linked to that, but a bit separate is, is being an Asian football fan. Um, obviously something I can massively relate to. Uh, and in that context, I kind of mean specifically South Asian, you know, Indian, Pakistani, Bangladeshi, etc. Um, I mean, if we just get onto that, I guess, pretty much straight away. I mean, my, my sense is, that sort of general football watching public in this country don't realise just how many people from the South Asian community in this country are into football, either who watch it regularly, match goers or, or on the television or, or play it even recreationally. Um, where did the love of football for you come from? Hard to say, you know, because it's, it's, it's one of those things that's just always been in my life. I've always loved it. I actually think it's it's a birthright. Okay, so uh, my birthday is 24th of May, 1968. It was a Friday. And um, my, my, my mother and father, I was born and brought up in Wolverhampton. Uh, but lots of my, my, my dad's cousins and stuff lived in Manchester, the day I was brought home after I was born was the 29th of May, the following Wednesday, uh, and nobody came to visit me when I came home. <laughs> I think I know where this is going, yeah. All of my uncles and aunties <laughs> were at Wembley for the yeah. European Cup final in 1968. Wow. And so I, I, I think that there's a sort of, you know, you have a favourite uncle, favourite auntie, they like, they've got a team, they all supported United, all my favourite uncles, favourite cousins, and I love football. Um, uh, right from an early age, I don't know why the colour, the kit, the just watching it on, you know, on TV, watching it in the early seventies, you didn't get to see games all the time. It was a rarity. You got a little bit on match of the day. It was exciting to find out mm. which game would be on match of the day. And so, yeah, I've loved it right from yeah four, five, six years old. And uh, and then it's just a bit of a high point in seventy four when I was six years old watching the watching the World Cup. 
you know, first World Cup I can remember. And the final, I'm from Wolverhampton, the final was refereed by a butcher from Wolverhampton called Jack Taylor. So we yeah. felt like we had a role in the World Cup. <laughs> big local news for us. Um, yeah. But yeah, so I've, I've, I've just always been a fan and so I ended up choosing United because of because of cousins and, and uncles. Um, and also a little bit, look, I was born, I said, in May 1968. In April 1968, one of our local MPs, Enoch Powell, gave the Rivers of Blood speech. He was a local MP in Wolverhampton. And his words are an echo throughout my childhood. You know, every, every week, every other week at school, you're having kids telling you that Enoch's right and go back home and go back where you came from. Well, if you're a kid, if you're an Asian kid in Wolverhampton, that's kind of part and parcel of it. But it also meant that, you know, it's very different now, but at the time, the idea of supporting or going to Wolves just wasn't even an issue. West Brom, maybe, because of the three black players, but not Wolves. Mm. Oh, that's interesting. So Enoch Powell being the local MP in Wolverhampton when you were growing up had a knock-on effect in terms of you going to support if you wanted to, obviously you grew up a United fan, you were brought home on the day they won the European Cup final, which is you know an amazing, amazing tale, amazing coincidence. Um, but even if you wanted to support Wolves or just go watch Wolves casually, the Enoch Powell being the MP, obviously having given the infamous uh, and very inflammatory Rivers of Blood speech made that difficult for you. Did that did it just become such a sort of hardcore element of Wolverhampton culture at that time that I, I'm trying to use my words carefully, but essentially Molyneux, obviously Wolves' home ground became sort of a bit of a racial hotbed then and it was difficult for people who weren't white to go to go there that's exactly it and it was and you know <laughs> I can remember stories in the 70s of burning crosses on Cannock Chase and and, and, oh, and I heard other other people around football and around society talk about that as well and so Wolverhampton was always this sort of bit of a hotbed and and the football club you know unfortunately attracted some of the unsavoury characters around around at that time you know, on the far right in 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 the West Midlands, and so if you were if you're not white in the 1970s in in the black country, the team you supported was probably West Brom, not yeah. Wolves. Now it's different now, and what's great, you know, you see things like the Punjabi Wolves and the amount of work Wolves does in the Asian community. And I'm so you know, happy, pleased and proud that they're doing incredible work now and it is completely safe for you to go and be a Wolves yeah, fan yeah. and, and they embrace the that part of the local culture. But that just wasn't the way in the 1970s. That wasn't yeah. what it was like. I mean, that's such a shame. I mean, I'm, I don't know Wolverhampton particularly well, but I know people from there and I've, I've been there a few times. I went to see Liverpool play away there in December 2019 and I remember going for a... Me and again, I, I go I go to Liverpool and we'll come on to this in a bit uh, shortly. I go to Liverpool with a lot of Asian people. There's a load of us who go, a lot of Asian guys from, from London. And we went for a curry before the game uh, in Wolverhampton uh, in, I said, December 2019. And I think it was owned by Wolves fans. And you've talked about um, the Punjabi Wolves has obviously become quite a well-known and, and fantastic sort of supporter group. And so I mean, Wolverhampton's got an incredibly strong Asian community, isn't it? And to know that there was a period when those people felt ostracized and isolated from the local club is it's pretty extraordinary um 
yeah, just kind of quite stark, really. Yeah. And the, and the flip side is how great it is now and how connected they are now. And you know, it's like the, yeah. the Ben Tanduri has become a bit of a sort of legend for play, people to go to before a match. And I think Alan Shearer was in there before a live match or whatever. That might be where we went to. I'm not sure. Probably. Actually. Probably. Yeah, yeah, probably was. Yeah. <laughs> it was definitely a well known curry house in Wolverhampton that we went to. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and it, yeah, now it's it's part of the culture, and it's something that's yeah. embraced. The the South Asian community is embraced as part of the culture involved, and that's that's a great thing. And and my experience of going to games has been that it's changed over 30, 40 years. You know, when I when I first got the role at Kick It Out, actually, my my nephew, one of my, I've got a couple of nephews, and one of them in particular comes with me to quite a lot of away matches, and he said that one of his um, one of his the father of one of his friends had, had sort of reached out and said, "Oh yeah, he, he remembers me because I'd been going through away matches from the eighties and nineties, and there weren't many South Asian Man United fans going away from home, and so he he knew who I was because it's always the same old faces that are going to away matches, and of course it's different now. You wouldn't be able to pick someone out because there are so many South yeah. Asian fans that go home and away to watch." to watch United and, and like you say, Liverpool and other clubs. Uh, and that is one of the successes over the last 30, 40 years. It's, it's very easy to focus on the, the negatives and the things where there are still challenges around the game. And there are plenty of those and we should focus on them. But we should also notice where we have had success. And actually, has been success with South Asian fans. Got plenty more work to do with South Asians on the pitch. There's not, not enough, nowhere near enough players. But uh, we're really heavily engaged as a as a as a as a group in football, and now much more attending. Um, and that's very very different. I've noticed that over the last forty years, it's so different to mm. to when I first started going to watch games. Yeah, well, I mean, that's kind of you know the the gist of kind of this you know our chat. Certainly, this element of it is that, as I said, I. I'm not sure people who aren't from the South Asian community realise how many South Asians go to football, certainly how much they love it and actually physically go to football. I mean, to sort of, as, as I sort of touched on then, to give my story somewhat is I'm part of a supporters club that goes up from London uh, pretty much every home game. There's, there's three guys who run our supporters club, two of them as cop season ticket holders. One doesn't come as much as he used to. Two, two are cop season ticket holders. One stepped away slightly for... COVID stroke work reasons which I won't go into but one is there every, literally every single home game I think he's missed maybe three home games in about 30 years there's a load of us who go as well um, you may be you know you may not catch us on telly a lot you know if, when, when there's sort of crowd shots we don't seem to get in the crowd shots but honestly I can tell you Liverpool home in the way and I'm absolutely sure it's the case with Man United and I'm sure it's the case with other clubs there's a lot of Asian people in the home end at games in the, well in the home gra- crowd and in the away end at games and often, um, it doesn't seem like this is the case with you, but correct me if I'm wrong. It's oft, often people from South Asian community support big clubs. You know, I get it a lot being a Londoner. Why don't you support your local club? Well, the reason I support Liverpool is linked very much to my immigrant roots because my dad, he's Indian, but he, was, uh, he grew up in Kenya, in Africa, in Mombasa. And he was a mechanic there. And he uh, casually supported a, a sort of a local amateur team who played in red and called themselves Liverpool. And, uh, you know, I think he had a few mates in the team and, and what have you. And so he used to go watch him on his lunch break or after work or whatever and grew a fondness for them. And then he came to this country with the rest of his family, my uncles and aunts and my grandparents in 1971 and realised there was an English team called Liverpool. And obviously the team he'd been watching in Kenya were named after them. So he transferred their, his allegiances to them. I was born in 1981, got into football in the late 80s, was told by a kid at school, you support who your dad supports asked my dad who sports he was a Liverpool fan and so therefore I was a Liverpool fan from London but the point of that is is that it's often the case that people from our community support the big clubs 
because they're the ones who trans, you know, they're the ones who cross borders and oceans and that our parents and uncles and aunts pick up on when they're in countries that they eventually move from to this country, whether it be India, Pakistan, countries in Africa, whatever. Um, and that's why, that's really the story why there are lots of Asian Liverpool fans, why there are Asian Manchester United fans. It does, is that the case for you? Because you were saying your family are from Manchester, but did they, was that United link, is the Manchester United link, is it linked at all, the love for United within your family? Is it all local or is it, is there that, like with no, me, because of the immigrant nature? Of, I, I, of I think there's a couple of other things as well, actually. My, so my parents are not sports fans at all, really. Mm. Um, and definitely not football fans. And, uh, and so it was really, and so I didn't get that culture of, oh, you support the team that you support your local team. Yeah. You know, there's an assumption that everyone knows that. Right. Yeah. Well, actually, when I was brought up as a kid, I, I didn't know that. No, no one told me because <laughs> I didn't have football in my direct yeah. family. What I saw was my experience was watching football on TV and then my uncles and my cousins talk about football and it was this glamorous thing about going to see George Best and going to Old Trafford. So, you know, and there was a TV programme on at the time called The Best of Football. It was a sort of like tea time programme where you did a sort of football skills thing. So all of my associations with Football were things that you saw on TV. And so but my allegiance had already formed. The one yeah. thing I had picked up pretty quickly was that once you pick a team, that's it. Right? And you yeah. don't change. Uh, and I kind of picked my team based on mm. my uncles and my cousins and my, my, my you know, my favourite uncles and cousins and what they liked. You hear I worship them. So I do what I do what they do in and in, in because I was interested in football, so that that's who I ended up supporting. But there is, there was also an element at that time. I think it's maybe more difficult to escape it now. But the idea that I don't think that thing about support your local team, it certainly wasn't drummed into me. It wasn't something I heard loads of at school. It was probably only when I got to senior school and get to sort of 14, 15 that I started to hear those things. Well, you know, I'd been supporting my team for 10 years before then. I wasn't going to change then. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. But also on, on that as well, again, the whole local team thing, that for me as well, that has to be kind of rooted in the family. But as it, like we, we lived in North London, but we didn't have North London roots. My granddad didn't wasn't yeah. brought up in North London. My great-granddad wasn't in North London. They weren't going to Highbury in the 40s and the 50s. We have no local... Yeah, we. I, I'm very proud to be a North Londoner. We grew up near Wem a place called Kingsbury near Wembley, but we don't yeah. have those roots. So in a way, we're as much Liverpool, you know, in terms of football heritage, we're as much Liverpool or Manchester United or Celtic or Rangers than we are Arsenal, Tottenham, Barnet, Harrow, Harrow and Willstone, whoever, because those roots aren't there. Yeah, we live in North London, but if that makes sense, you know, I think a lot of people support their local club. Yeah, you were probably taken there by your dad or your granddad, and there's stories about going to those teams that spread generations. You know, our story began in 1971 when my dad moved to London. There's no roots there, you know. We could have moved anywhere, but we lived in London. But we don't, you know, if that might, you know, we don't have that. We yeah, had the added complication that, yeah, but my local team's Wolves, and uh, I'm five, six, seven years old. That's my local team, and they're not got, welcome there. And you got, and I'm not welcome there. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you yeah, can't yeah. tell me to support my local team when my local team actually, when I'm at the yeah. age of forming an affiliation, they don't want me. Yeah. Well, the fans are not necessarily the club, but the fans are telling me they don't want people like me. Yeah. So you go where you feel like you belong. And actually, the I still think you know, for a lot of black Asian kids growing up in the 70s in my part of the world, it would have been West Brom or Man United. West Brom because of because of the three black players and, and Man United because 
it actually felt quite welcoming. Uh, mm. And there's a little bit about, it was still, we're still talking about the early 70s, right? It's only 13 years after the air crash. And that made Man United the national team. Mm. You know, people forget there were very, very different feelings in the late 50s and 60s. And so my uncles quite often would go to United one week and City the next because that was not unheard of in mm. the 70s for people to do that. Now, people, that's unheard of. So I, I don't have that. I wasn't brought up with that animosity towards City that a lot of United fans are. You know, Liverpool, different. You know, there's the rivalry there. Um, but not not, not City, because like I said, my, the culture I was brought up, it was, yeah, you can go to one one week and one the other week because there wasn't always that culture of going to away matches. Mm. You stayed there. They lived in Manchester and went to the local the local team on a on a Saturday. Whoever happened to be playing, um, so you know, cultures change and evolve over time. You you wouldn't really see that now. No, absolutely not. Yeah, the idea of someone going to the Etihad one week and Old Trafford the next absolutely impossible now. Um, well, we might, we might, we might help them fill the stadium. Oh, very nice, <laughs> lovely little dig there. I'm keeping it. I'm going to clip that, put that out, Sanjay. Uh, <laughs> that should help your Twitter mentions. Um, I mean, your again, your experience is very unique and very interesting, kind of very sad as well because of of the Enoch Powell link. But so in term, in relation to the question I'm about to ask, but. Did you feel being Asian that football, even though you loved it and it was a passion and it was it was part of your family and it was something you talked about, and yeah, that's say uncles and aunts support United, that it was for you. And what I mean by that is growing up where I did, that's in Kingsbury, North London, near Wembley, I was part of a huge Asian community. There were more Asians in my school than there were non-Asians. On Diwali, the school was basically empty. There's like six lads in there. Everyone else was off, off, off on a bank holiday. Um, and we kicked a ball about and played football and we all had teams. So I, I, you know, I didn't feel I had loads of Asians around me who, who loved football. And so it was kind of our thing as, as much as it was the white kids and the black kids, but equally watching football. And you just touched on this. There was nobody looked like me. You know, there were no Asian footballers. There's still a massive dearth of Asian footballers. So although I felt it's very much something I could connect to, I also felt disconnected from it because I didn't see people on TV who look like me. So it's, again, we as South Asians and Asians have a slightly odd relationship with football. We love it. But I think we're quite conscious that we're not part of it as well, if that makes sense. Did you have that? I mean, I say your experience is quite unique because of the whole Enoch Powell thing as well. So I don't know. You may have felt disconnected from it from that point of view anyway. Yeah. I, 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 look, I, as a kid, every weekday, every weekend, I'm out in the local park kicking a ball around with my mm. mates. All right. Some Asian kids, some black kids, some white kids. You're just kids playing football, right? And you're playing in the school team and you're then going off and, and you know, doing my academic studies and stuff like that. Uh, so I always felt like football was part of my life and was something I was welcome to do and to participate in. It was different going to a match. It didn't, because you didn't see people like you on the pitch. I didn't see people like me necessarily in the stands. It was a little bit more, a bit more trepidation going there um, and sort of introduced... Uh, particularly united by by my cousins and, and my uncles taking me to matches in the in the eighties, um, and I suppose a big thing was sort of late eighties, early nineties when I was starting when I was university and then starting to go on my own. And actually, I just mm. got on my own, and I, I first started by just going on my own, and then I started to acquire mates and 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 going with them, but very often I was the only brain face, you know, I was going with a load of my white friends and, you know, it, it, it wasn't, it wasn't somewhere I thought, right, 
I'm going to see loads of people like me. But in a way, part of my personality, you know, I, I became a lawyer because lots of them, you know, despite advice from extended family saying, you know, in the 80s, well, you don't see many Asian lawyers in the city. You go, yeah, that's the reason I want to do it. Right. Yeah. So, yeah, mate, I never really let that kind of stuff stop me. If anything, it makes me want to do it. And, um, and so, yeah, there, there were maybe not always feeling like you quite belonged. Uh, but I never let that stop me. I just yeah. carry on and I'll go. And, and now it feels very different. You know, it feels like it feels like I completely belong on, on the, in the stands. I don't think as a community we feel like we belong on the pitch yet. And it's not normalised. And that's, you know, part of what I want to do with the work with Kicking Out is that has to become normalised. We have to feel like this is a game where we can be playing at the elite level. Because at grassroots level, the participation with the British South Asian community, men, boys, women, girls, is exactly where you'd expect it to be, mm. correlating with population statistics, but with, with the most underrepresented minority community on the pitch. Yeah, well, if, interesting. I saw um, in my research for this, I saw you spoke about this recently. Um, I think, the, correct me if, if I'm wrong on this, but I think the figures are that South Asians make up 8% of the, of the UK population, I think it might be. Yet, um, there's less than 0.5% of all professional footballers in the UK are, are from the same are from the same background. I mean, that for me is shocking and not shocking at the same time. As I said, just growing up watching football, we just saw no Asian footballers. The odd one would pop up and you think, oh, he might. I remember Hardeep Singh, I think it was a guy at Leeds in the 90s. And you yeah. thought, oh, he might be the one who becomes a bit of a star and he sort of faded away. And then we've had we've had others since then. And I guess Hamza Chowdhury at Leeds is the, is the uh, not Leeds, sorry, Leicester is the kind of the big hope at the moment. I mean, you, you spoke about sort of, I think in this in a recent interview maybe with Sky calling for sort of urgent action on this I mean it is I mean this isn't kind of linked to the fan experience being Asian but I think it's very important to talk to and I think it is important from an Asian fan point of view because it's so important to see people who look like us in the games it helps it makes us feel more as I said more connected to the to the sport I mean what what do you put that down maybe it's too much to talk about on this podcast but we'll have a quick go with it what do you put that what do you put that lack of representation down to are there sort of key fundamental points and what can be done about it I think you know, I've come from other industries and my experience when you look at, when I look across any other industries where I've been involved in those kind of change programs is when you get a big statistical anomaly like that, that is so egregious, you've got to look at the systems and processes for recruitment and retention. And so inevitably there's some stuff going wrong and there's going to be some bias baked into that. And, and I'm sure that that's, that's, what's get, that's what's there. And we have to unpick that and make sure that the... Um, uh, the clubs and the academy systems are, are are really taking advantage of the talent that's out there. I mean, one of the I'm sure that one of the things that operates because I hear it every so often is you know the physical strength referred to and diets and stuff like that and and and, um, and the, the dedication another one as well I often hear they think you know the Asian kids yeah. won't dedicate themselves to football they all, they all eventually their parents will eventually make them become doctors and lawyers that's the other one there's no that. evidence of that. Right, yeah. these are just, what they are. Is these are myths that become reality and they get baked in. And so, what you 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 have to kind of unpick those myths and mm. demystify those things. And with with data, and I know there's some research. I was talking to a researcher last week in another sport, and attacking all of those those myths. And you can they can prove with data that they were just all untrue. Um, uh, things like the fitness and stuff. And it's like one of the things that, that I've said a few times recently is, you know, when you look at things like physique, thank God 
Messi, Xavi, and Iniesta were not born Asian Hampton yeah. in the nineteen nineties. <laughs> they'd have never had a career. No, sure. Their career would have finished at eight years old because they'd have never got into an academy. Because yeah. someone would have said, "Well, they would have just looked at their ethnicity rather than their talent and said." Well, these are the things that that are true about you because of your ethnicity. Mm. Three of the greatest players in the history of football, yeah. all physically built the way that many people believe that South Asians are built and therefore not built for the game. So, there's a there's a job of work to do, but we've we've got some some initiatives which which um, which we're working on actually, and we'll we'll hopefully announce soon. And so, yeah, maybe I'll come and talk to you about that separately when we're uh, when, when we've got some more things to share in the coming uh, coming weeks. No, absolutely. Please do. I mean, one, one scheme I know about, I did a, I did a piece sort of related to this. Uh, was it early this year? What year are we now? 2022? No, I think it was last year, 2021. So I lose track of time a little bit. Uh, the PFA, obviously Professional Football Association's mentoring scheme, where they've got Asian professionals like Neil Taylor, Danny Bath, yeah. to talk to young Asian players who are in academies and, and sort of really push positive message to them. Because obviously it is so negative around it. We're being a bit negative as well. We're quite negative about it, but they're sort of, trying to be positive about the experience and then trying to inspire them and say that you really can make it. And when you get here, it can be great. And I mean, I'm not sure how that's going, but I, I spoke to the dad of a, of a guy called Ram Marwa, who was himself a, a, um, um, someone who played at sort of non-league level and actually suffered some sort of race, suffered racism at that, at that level as well, which is really sort of uh, dispiriting and for him, but his son is now at Chelsea's Academy and he's saying he was going through the mentoring scheme and, and it was really helping him and inspiring him. So, so that was really positive. I mean, just to give sort of one sort of story I, I often give about this thing and how ingrained it is, is when I was at school, Kingsbury High School in Kingsbury, there was a kid in our class called Ross Fitzsimon who didn't do his A-levels because he went to play for Tottenham. And Ross was brilliant. Don't get me wrong. He's absolutely fantastic and uh, miles better than most of us. And so it was no surprise when he went to, you know, at 16, he left school and went to play for Spurs. He never made it in the end. But in, this, in, our, in our group of friends, there was another kid and he's now become a really well-known journalist, works for the New York Times called Tarek Panja. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And he's, a, sort of, he's from Kingsbury. He's a mate, he was a mate of mine from school and he was brilliant at football. I would say he was as good as Ross. And I remember he used to talking to Tarek and saying, you know, Ross is going to Spurs. What, you know, you could be a footballer and, you know, you could, you know you're as good as him and, and, and what have you. And A, he hadn't been picked up by a club and that's probably linked to a lot of things you're talking about. But the other thing that really was struck me and, and Tarek may disagree with this, so feel free if you ever listen to this, Tarek, to come back at me, was just a complete lack of belief that he could become a footballer. Because yeah. people like him, people call Tarek Panja don't become footballers. And it's like, yeah. but no, no, I, won't, I can't become a footballer. I won't become a footballer. But it's like, you can, you're brilliant. You're as good as Ross, but... Again, it's so ingrained, isn't it, in our culture that you, if you're Asian, you're just, you're just really not going to make it. And so even those kids who are really talented, A, don't have the opportunities, but crucially as well, just don't have the belief. And that's why role models, I think, are just, just massive. Yeah, it, it is really important to have those role models. I think what the PFA is doing, Riz Redmond, uh, the PFA is running that programme. Yeah. Program. It's a brilliant programme and it's completely right. You've got to focus on those kids to help them to be successful and not, the thing I'm really interested in is just not putting too much pressure on them because every time one of them makes their debut, whether it's Dylan Markande at Spurs or Zidane Iqbal at Man United, it makes news because they're the yeah. first. And so every time I get asked about that, I go, well, it's great, but also I don't want to put too much pressure yeah, on them. That's a very but, good point. You know, we should really, they're young kids. It's really hard to make it in the programme. Even once you've made your debut, that that isn't the end of the story. There's still lots more to be done. So we have to, we have to, we have to get to a point where it's no longer a story. Mm. It's no longer, it's it, the reason it's a story is because it's not normal and it's yeah. not normalized. So we need to normalize the fact that there are South Asian kids 
playing and that they can be professionals. I think, you know, there was a session at St George's a couple of weeks ago, and I think some of the figures that you created were some of the PFA figures that that uh, that uh, Riz talked about before that session at St George's a couple of weeks ago. So I think the, move, the figures are moving in the right direction. we just got to keep that going, help them to be successful, but also make sure that there's a pipeline of people behind them, that this is ultimately... Yeah. You know, the vast majority of kids, sadly, as they come through the academy systems, don't make it to mm. level. So it becomes a numbers game. You've got to have more and more and more coming through this space at the top of the funnel so that they make yeah. it to the bottom and actually onto the pitch. Yeah, that's a great point about the pressure thing. You see often on yeah, Twitter specifically, you know, an Asian kid, the young lad at Spurs recently comes on and we're all, I'm guilty of it, we're all tweeting, you know, posts about it saying how amazing an Asian footballer it is and that, uh, amazing that an Asian footballer is playing it for a club like Tottenham and he just oh, I must crank up the pressure. And then if they don't make it, which is actually the norm for most kids, most kids don't make it, it's suddenly like there's a real kind of shoulder dropper, isn't it? But it shouldn't be because it's part of the system and yeah. Now, great point about, yeah, let's reduce the pressure a little bit. Going back to your experience, we'll talk about United again in a little bit more detail um, later, but just to come back to it. So, yeah, talk to me about what was your first game, first time you went to United play in the flesh and that experience as when, I say it's not for me, I feel very fortunate. I've been watching Liverpool pretty much regularly since about 2003. As I go with a load of Asians, I'm surrounded by Asians in the cop or, well, not surrounded, but there are other Asians in the cop or at away games. But you were saying, obviously, going in the eighties, that like, you were like, you know, maybe the only the only one, maybe in the strip for the end or or in the case stand or and away games. What was that? What was your first game? What was that experience like? Um, and I guess the hard question is, well, did did you suffer any racism either home or away? Yeah. So um, actually, my first actually attending the game wasn't a United game. It was a charity match. Uh, my local team, Bilston Town. Played a Tizwas eleven. Uh, <laughs> Tizwas eleven. It's Chris Tarrant up front for them. Exactly, yeah, Chris, Chris Tarrant, the Phantom Flanflinger, um, <laughs> and Trevor East, who I've got to know through Twitter as well. And I was talking to him the other week. He's a big Plymouth Argyle He's a massive TV executive producer. He was a presenter on Tizwas in the early seventies. I said, "Oh, I think." I said, "Did you ever come to Bilston Town?" He said, "Yeah." I said, "I was at that match." <laughs> wow! As a kid, I was at that match. I watched you play, um, and then I think I went to a, a Ronnie Allen testimonial for West Brom. Uh, but the first trip to United was early eighties. Um, it was actually against Liverpool, one-one draw. Wow, that's a f- uh, massive uh, first game, guys. <laughs> Arnold Muren and Kenny Dalglish, right? Uh, and then, and then I had the privilege of seeing things like the, in the early eighties, like seeing Alan Brazil score a goal for Man United. That's a real rarity. I think he scored <laughs> about eight or nine for us. Yeah. And he didn't score many. He wasn't great. Um, and yeah, I sort of slight, slowly started going through the eighties as I could save up money to try and to try and get on a train, be trusted to go on the train on my own up to up to Manchester to spend the weekend with with uncles and cousins. Um and then going really regularly once I sort of started going to university and was a bit more independent from from sort of late eighties. Um and then you know early nineties again collecting my match token so I could get a season ticket. Again, a league match ticket book and then a season ticket and then you know, applying on there. I apply for every single away match and I go through as many as I can. So I've got to, I've got a trip up to Anfield subject to the, the, the rearrangement if I can arrange my travel around it and, and, and to Goodison actually as well about five days later. So we've got, got a couple of good trips up to, to Merseyside soon. Um, uh, yeah, that first 
game that, that Liverpool Man United the first thing I remember was of course it's the 80s it wasn't always the most pleasant but walking yeah. over that bridge and then there's other Liverpool fans on the on the train tracks underneath throwing half-enders over the bridge at us you know another 14-year-old kid with my, with my uncle dodging these half-enders going flying over your head um, which is why I find it funny when we you know we talk about fans and going to away matches now and all the sort of the sort of all that, all that goading when you're on the edges by the away fans, the home fans, and you, you, you don't know what it was really like, how bad it was in the eighties. Um, that's the dog letting you know that it is bad. Um, <laughs> um, uh, uh, so I, I think did, did I have a bit? Actually, not so much. Not, I was a bit protected in when I was going first because I was going with my cousins and my uncles. I think I noticed it much more when I was sort of going started to go on my own in the late 80s and and early 90s and then going much more regularly going home and away so it, in the early days because we you know, I was I was born on a council estate we were poor right and so I couldn't afford to go uh regularly it was only once I could afford to go that I started to go regularly but once I started to go regularly I started to see it more and start to experience it more um through, through the 80s and 90s in particular uh, and people forget, you know, because there's a sort of feels it feels like a golden age of football in the nineties because of the advent of the Premier League. Mm. But, but that was a lot of gloss. It was still there was still there was still an element of putting lipstick on a pig. There was still quite a pig underneath there of pretty bad behaviour and antisocial behaviour and racism and all sorts of other things. And so yeah, I had some experiences of that, you know, abuse and. Uh, people throwing stuff at you and shouting things at you. Um, it got to be easier when I was with a whole bunch of, started to go with a bunch of mates and and then you'd have a bunch of mates sticking up for you. Um, but it's mostly, it's mostly words, right? It wasn't, it wasn't physical, it was mostly words. Um, and I think I, I was reasonably robust when I was that age. So you kind of, you, you, in a way, you you kind of not quite accept, but you 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 can't get angry all the time. Otherwise, you spend your entire life angry, and so you pick your moments when you get annoyed. Um, uh, and also, if you get so angry, kind of the other side, the other person's won, uh, uh, and so you kind of like brush it off or laugh it off or laugh at people or join in, turn it into a joke. I remember being at an England Scotland game with a whole stand of England fans you know during Euro 96 and the England fans going I'd, I'd rather be a packy than a jock and 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 me stand up and go yes yeah, so would I and get a <laughs> massive laugh from people <laughs> around me right yeah. and it kind of deflated it but that's my way of dealing with it but actually I probably shouldn't have to do that should I no, and, and now when you roll forward 26 years would you think that's acceptable actually I think the great thing is you probably wouldn't hear that from a stand of England fans now. No. Um, and and it wouldn't take the South Asian fan to say something because actually there'd be a bunch of white allies who'd be doing it and stopping that stuff before it starts. So, you know, that kind of stuff that was common in the 90s and not just towards South Asians, you know, I'd, I'd hear certain chants aimed at black people that you'd never hear now and the liberal use of the n-word and certain chants that you just you just don't thankfully you just don't hear now um, but they were normal every game you would hear them 
Uh, even even into the nineties and late nineties, you were still hearing that stuff. So um, I think things have changed quite a lot over the last twenty years. Uh, I think in the in in stadium and the behaviour of fans and the, the the types of chanting you hear, um, and even even over ten years, you know, the kinds of things that I'm sure Man United fans have been chanting about Liverpool fans or Liverpool fans chanting about Man United fans. Things nothing to do with racism or discrimination, but just actually, we wouldn't say that now. Hmm. Yeah. No, I mean. I, actually, I don't know if it was the same. I went to England, Scotland at Euro '96. The, the yeah, Paul Gasco. Was that the game? Yeah, I, yeah, yeah. I was 15. I don't remember hearing that. I think it would have really affected me. I had a great afternoon, but maybe we were in different sections of ground. But it's mad that was happening even in the mid '90s. As you say, we have this idea that the '90s was a. I love the '90s. You know, it was like I bang on about it a lot. It's my all-time favorite decade, mainly because I was just because I was a teenager in it. I think whatever decade you're a teenager and you love, but you're right. It wasn't all you know, all new age football and, you know, warm hugs and embraces and everyone loving Tony Yaboa scoring great goals. It was, it was still a bit dark, wasn't it? And yeah. I mean, in terms of racism element, I mean, this is more late eighties, but we had Leon Mann on this podcast and he was, he was speaking. I mean, again, this just shows you how kind of grim the whole thing is. He, he's a sp- massive Spurs fan. He, you know, he says going to White Hart Lane in like the late eighties, uh, early nineties, the one thing you didn't want was the opposition to have really good black players like Wimbledon or aggressive black players, because if you had black players who were causing Spurs problems, the first thing you'd hear around him from his own supporters, fellow Spurs fans is end this, end that. And then as a kid, you know, with his dad, you know, it was his dad, you know, he'd be thinking, Oh God, my dad's going to start kicking off and creating a scene. And all I said, as he said, all he wanted to do was just watch football. And, but yeah, imagine being a young, yeah, he's mixed, he's mixed race, but being a mixed race kid going to White Hart Lane thinking, please don't have good black players on the opposition team because all I'm going to hear today is the N-word. I mean, that's it's just absolutely yeah. grim, isn't it? I mean, yeah. in terms of in terms of where we are, I mean, as you say, things have vastly improved, but I know Kick Out had a, uh, released a report in September. This is the, the latest one I can find. It's probably a, a more up-to-date mm-hmm. one, but you, you guys released a report in September 2020 that showed... There were 446 incidents of racist abuse reported during the 2019-2020 season, which was a 42% increase on the previous season. And that was despite lots of games or hundreds of games about being played behind closed doors because of the pandemic. Um, some of that is definitely down to great reporting of racist abuse. I think it's up by 53% uh, during the same period. But still pretty alarming figure. I think Kick It Out described it as, as shocking. Um, as I said, I don't know where we are with the latest figures, but it does make for for pretty grim reading um is it a case as as is as often with lots of things of football sort of reflecting society you know we certainly it feels like we live in a kind of more divisive you know maybe hate hateful society maybe that's not the right word than we have done for quite a while and is it also linked to social media and the ease on with which sort of trolls can abuse people not just based on their on the color of their skin but also their gender and sexual orientation i mean i is football is it just football reflecting where we are in society, or do you think there's other issues specifically linked to to football for why we're having this rise in, in reports of racism? It's a bit of everything, really. It's a bit of all of those things are true. You know, mm. it, it, does football does reflect society, um, but it also amplifies things that are going on in society because um, you know we don't exist in a vacuum. Mm. So things that are happening in the rest of society, the statistics that we've seen over the last four or five years for the reporting we received, they kind of correlate with the growth in hate crime and the hate crime statistics that are published by the Home Office across the whole of society. So they they all, you know, they're increasing at around the same rates. So the, to that extent, it does reflect what's going on in the rest of society. 
But of course, in some ways, part of the problem is that the rest of society has become what football has always been, which is fiercely tribal. Now, that has changed over the last 10 years, that tribalism, that now intrinsically we are just a more conflicted society. It's, you know, we're just always finding reasons to fall out. Are you leave or are you remain? Are you, uh, are you, are you, are you mask or no mask? Are you vax? Are you anti-vax? Everything is set up as an opposition and there's no sort of meaningful gray middle ground where you can find areas of agreement and social media amplifies that because it puts you in your bubbles and discourages you from engaging with someone who has a different view to you and has a different opinion to you. And you never hear anyone on Twitter say, oh, yeah, well, I was wrong. Just you never hear that. Yeah. You know, well, I got that wrong and my opinions change. We're not allowed to change our minds. We're not allowed to have new facts and therefore have a different view because there are new facts. That is unfashionable now. We have to pick a team and stick to it. So it's become tribal, exactly what football has always been. Mm-hmm. And of course, it's interesting, know, just to sorry to interrupt you. So it's interesting what you say. Like I was talking about it, is football reflecting society? It's like society is reflecting football. Yeah, it's <laughs> taken all the worst bits of football, actually. The tribalism, the fierceness of the tribalism. And, and the other thing, I suppose, is we're in a sort of increasingly secular society. And actually, in that increasingly secular society, football is almost our national religion. You know, Premier League is the biggest soft power export of the UK. It's the Mm. most popular league. It is the place where we worship two, three, four times a week. Uh, And and so there's those constant engagement. But the flip side of that, the, the optimistic view is, yeah, football is a barometer that tells us what's going on in society, but it can also be a beacon because of the influence, because of the influence of the Premier League, because of the influence around the world. Things that we do in football, we can change football, but we can change society. And I think some of the things like the players decided to take the knee, that's had an influence on, on you know, and the, the abuse that the players got after Euro 2020. I'm pretty sure the online safety bill wouldn't have gone through as quickly as it had if the players hadn't been taken the knee during during lockdown and after George Floyd and 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 the things that happened after the Euros final. And you know, I was one of those people. I've been working on that quite a lot and gave evidence on the first day with Rio Ferdinand. But we were requested by the committee, can you can you come on day one to give evidence? And could you could football come on day one and could you bring a you know a current or former player with you? Because that will really help us in getting what we need to get done through the bill. So football can have a massive influence mm-hmm. as well. And so we need to more consciously use that power. And I think uh, people are conscious in the game that we have that power and we want to use it for 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 good. So yeah, all of those things are true. It is a barometer, it is a, but it is also a beacon for change and we have to consciously use it as a beacon for change. Yeah, that's interesting. I mean, as depressing as the abuse that, I think it was specifically, wasn't it, Marcus Rashford, Jane Sancho and Bakaya Sacco got after the Euro 2020 final because they were the three lads who, I think they all they all missed the penalties in the shootout. As depressing and grim as the racist abuse they got online was, I think the reaction to it was was quite positive I thought it's almost you know this kind of universal outpouring of kind of disgust at the abuse they got and support for those for those three guys and I was going to ask you about sort of where we are with with tracking and dealing with racist abuse on social media I mean the online safety bill you mentioned where 
could you just outline what that actually does and where we are with it? Yeah, so it's a massive, massive, massive bill, right? And so there was an initial draft, uh, I think in May last year, uh, there was then uh, a joint committee under the chair of Damien Collins. They started giving a, receiving evidence in September. That was the, on the first day myself, Edlene John from the FA and Rio Ferdinand gave evidence. Um, no, I've, I've, I have a law firm that's been supporting me and you know, I've been instructed, I'm getting hundreds of pages of legal advice. So when I'm going and giving evidence, it's off the back of hundreds of pages of pro bono legal advice. And we really focus on the things that we want out of the bill. Uh, that stage completed. And now actually only last week, last Thursday, a new bill was, was, was created. Uh, uh, I'm playing my way through it. It's 250-page bill, 125 pages of notes, 60 pages of response to the joint committee. In, in short, there's a pretty robust system that has been in, that's being proposed. We need to look at the details. I think it's a sort of cautious welcome. It looks like it deals with quite a lot of the things that we're asking for, but there's a lot of detail in there and we need to work our way through it. Um, but I suppose what we would say is, look, this is revolutionary stuff. We would be the first country in the world to do this, to regulate online arms and to hold social media companies accountable. And so our, our government deserves some credit for doing that and for picking up the baton where nobody else is going. We're going where no other country is going in trying to take them on. No other country is trying to take them on. No other country is trying to regulate their activity. Um, so there are some new definitions of uh, hate crime. There are some new definitions of priority content. And there'll be more obligations on social media companies to track and remove content. Um, so we're hopeful that that can, that can have an impact. But, you know, we're just busy looking through that sort of 400 pages of detail. Mm. You said you said we're you know we're the only country doing this, but given there are no borders on social media, how, does it not need a, a, a global sort of universal universality not, of, not of action on this? Not necessarily. So I, my, I'm, a lot of my career I spent in the heavily regulated sectors, and so regulation and compliance was kind of my 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 bag. Um, and this is often the way with new industries and new activity is one country goes first. Actually, what tends to happen is until you get a period, until you get a reach a point of regulatory alignment where all the regulators are aligned, normally what most companies do is they comply with the most stringent laws. So until there was, as an example, data privacy, until there was broad alignment globally, everyone followed the EU rules or the German rules because they were the most strict. You say, well, if I follow that, I'm compliant everywhere. And so... That's probably where the, the social media companies will go. They'll bleat and they'll moan because that's what companies who have made made loads of money and suddenly starting to be regulated, that's what they do. They always bleat and moan. But mm. I've seen that for 30 years. They bleat and moan. They get over it, right? They get a compliance function and they start <coughs> dealing with it. So, uh, yeah, it's not perfect, but someone's got to start and someone's got to take a lead. Our government's taking a lead. And look, for all the things that we can criticise the Secretary of State for, I suspect actually her personality and her kind of desire to just drive something through and her personal experiences of being on the receiving end of abuse online has probably helped us to get some of this through in a tougher format than we would have. So I know lots of people criticise Nadine Doris for lots of things. We should be giving her credit for this. Yeah.
Well, fingers fingers crossed on that. It's absolutely vital. It's, I'm sure you've probably suffered it. I've certainly suffered it. And obviously the the high-profile footballers are suffering on a far too regular basis. So, yeah, ab- action on that is absolutely vital. And in terms of in what I'd call in-stadium abuse, racist abuse in, in stadiums, I mean... What I feel quite fortunate. I've never, I've never really suffered it. I've probably suffered it on two: once outside the ground, once inside the ground. Um, and like you, kind of have done, you know, mostly life. I kind of sort of just laughed it off and, and and refused to let it sort of beat me. But equally, if you're, you know, if you are someone from an ethnic minority in the football ground, you get racially abused. You shouldn't put up with it. You shouldn't stand for it. You should be able to report it. What can people who are in football stadiums who suffer racist abuse do? Is reporting it to kick it out one of the sort of step, vital, important uh, steps in in that process? Uh, certainly you can report to us. I think if you need something done urgently, your best bet is talk to a steward mm. actually at the ground because you need to you need to get something dealt with quickly. Yeah. You know, sometimes we'll pick up things when they're not quite so urgent, but for, for stuff in and around grounds. Um so yeah, you know, report to a steward. Most clubs have text lines or other ways of doing things so you get instant attention uh in, in the ground. Uh, and then if something doesn't require sort of instant, but it's something maybe particularly around the ground rather than necessarily inside it, again, you can use our app and, and report to us. And we, you know, we have a regular weekly meeting with the relevant clubs and the, and the, the police um, so that we can, we can make sure that something gets attention. Um, actually, you know, in many ways, the, the stuff in and around grounds, we've seen an increase in, and, and probably the start of this year, you know, the first six weeks I'd say of this this season we saw a really big spike it's probably 50% up on the last full season and and then maybe that was a post lockdown effect and we, we were you know, we're probably experiencing that in the same way that we did during the Euros uh, and it's probably died down a bit so we'll see but we'll see where we get to at the end of the season because we're also entering that period of the season where things are more things matter and so mm. uh, you tend to get more incidents at this stage of the season um, I think the other, probably the other point we just was made is, look, we often get focused, and quite rightly, on, on things that happen at the elite level of the game because they're high profile. But actually, if you think about discrimination and not just racism, because we've also seen a particular rise in homophobia over the last couple of years. Yeah, absolutely, yeah. yeah. It, it, it is that that actually it's in inverse proportion to the attention. So all of the attention really is on incidents at the top end of the game which in comparative terms are relatively few and far between and very little attention is what goes on at grassroots level they're actually there it's epidemic it's every week it's the it's endemic into the culture and that's where the biggest problems are with discrimination in in football it's how you deal with it at grassroots because you don't have those evidence sources you don't have cctv you don't have loads of students you don't have loads of police you don't have fifty thousand fans so you haven't got those evidence sources really hard to deal with at that level. And that's the thing, the big nut that we really have to crack collectively. I think there are enough people on all the stuff at the top end of the mm. game. There, aren't, there isn't enough attention on what goes on at grassroots level. Do you think it's, I mean, I've heard that as well. I mean, you hear so many grim stories of what's going on at grassroots levels. Do you think it's endemic because people quite simply can get away with it? Because actually there's not yeah. the CCTV and the stewardship, so they yeah. just go there and go, this is a free-for-all. It's, you know, it's exactly the same thing as what happens online what happens in at, at grassroots and what happens around the stadium think about going to a big game getting to any game and think about the behavior of the fans that you see 
when people feel like they're being watched and there'll be mm. consequences for their action, they moderate their behaviour. Absolutely. So, you know, you get on the tram or the train or the bus to a match, fewer police, behaviour might be a bit rowdier. As soon as you get to the concourse, stewards, police, same folks, quieten down. Inside the ground, you know, combination of alcohol and or cocaine and the excitement of the match and an incident might spark something. But generally, because people know they're being watched, mm. the behaviour is not quite as rowdy. And then that same pattern works itself back out in reverse when you go back out, out of the game mm. and heading onto the outskirts where you're not feeling like you watch the behaviour changes. Mm. Well, that's the same online. People don't feel like they're being watched. They don't feel there are any consequences. So I can behave however I like. It becomes like the Wild West. It's the same at grassroots. You're not being watched. There are no consequences. So I can do what I like. Yeah. I mean, you call it the nut that needs to be cracked. I mean, what can be done? I mean, it is impossible to sort of... It feels like an impossible challenge, really, because you can't massively. They can't have a massive surge of stewards at some game in the the Ryman's or, or or even lower down or CCTV everywhere at those sort of ground the grounds at that level. No, and I think I'm not going to pretend that I've got all of those answers, but I think some of the systems and the processes to get into those answers is about engaging with people at grassroots because they will probably have the answers. And you know, if it's I've heard of some people saying, "Well, actually, one of the things we do is we enforce that parents on the sidelines can say nothing." Mm. Uh, and, you know, it, it's, it's little things like that that change the culture around a club and certain around games. And so I think we have to work much more with the grassroots participants as to how we're going to deal with these things. And, and having a bit of maybe transparency around what's happening with reports and how quickly they get dealt with and what are those outcomes. And there will be good county FAs and there will be some other county FAs that maybe are not quite so good and going at quite the same pace. And we, we, we you know, we, we, we need to make sure that people know who they are and what they can expect and we can hold them to account for doing a better job uh, on, on handling complaints but ultimately it isn't just about the complaints handling it's about how we change that culture at grassroots that you know people at that age and at, at that level you should be playing for fun not because not because you know you're not you're not you're not playing at Wembley in the FA Cup final mm. uh it, this is this, and yet the problem is again is this people taking it almost so seriously and and putting so much pressure on on people so so much it seems to be riding on it yeah. uh, so it, it, it's not an easy one i don't think it's, a, it's going to be a slow cultural change i'm afraid i don't think there's a quick answer to some of these things uh, no absolutely absolutely right well let's get on to kick it out a bit more specifically then so as i said earlier uh independent charity campaigns and fights for equality inclusion in english football it was established in 1997 to deal primarily with tackling racism in english football and subsequently widen its objectives to cover all aspects of discrimination inequality and exclusion in england um yeah do you want to talk about how you became chair and uh, the team you have and and sort of maybe specific yeah. areas you're working on yeah, so it was actually established in 1993. So next year we have our 30th anniversary. Oh, really? Sorry, apologies. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was established after the first season of the Premier League. So, oh, wow. Uh, yeah, so I, I joined uh, two and a half years ago. Uh, uh, what was that? October 2020. Is that just before the 2019? I can't remember. 2019, October 2019, just before the first lockdown. Um, yeah, so we, we, yeah, we, we, we are a charity. We are funded... Uh, historically have been only funded by football, by Premier League, FA, EFL and the PFA. Um, 
and we now are also funded by Sky, and that's partly as a result of when I, I came in three years ago, someone asked me to apply for the role. I was coming coming out of my full-time career, decided I wanted to do a portfolio of lots of different roles. Uh, so I said, oh, this is this is available. Would you be interested in applying? We'd, we'd like you to apply. So, so I did, and, and I went through a process, and I, and I was successful. Um, so a couple of things I've been doing is sort of strategy review, governance review. One of the things I did on the governance was... was persuaded the football authorities to forego some specialist rights that they had, almost like some veto rights, because I wanted to make us more independent, including getting funding from third parties like Sky. And I knew that if we had these rights in there, there's no way we'd be able to do that. So that was one of the first things. It was a very small thing behind the scenes, but actually a really big thing, because it meant I can go and have these other conversations and Sky now support us to the tune of sort of a million pounds a year and kind of match the funding we get from the rest of football. Um, so we have, uh, we're a charity, our beneficiaries are underrepresented on minority communities in football. And we really do things around three areas, voice, skills, talent. So uh, in reverse order, talent is, and some of these things are the things that people don't see. Uh, so we do things like our Raise Your Game programme, trying to get people from underrepresented or minority communities into working in football not on the pitch, but the stuff off the pitch, you know, because there are lots of other roles around football. Um, skills, we do lots of education. So all the way from, we do education at all of the Premier League clubs, under nines through to under 60s, I think it is, uh, which you know, everyone knows Troy. Troy does a lot of those. Yeah, a lot right, of those it's fantastic Troy, isn't it? Yeah. Um, the, 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 the Equality Inspire sessions, to the kids and their parents. So you know, these are, and he does about twenty EFL clubs a year. So he's doing, you know, like ninety to one hundred of these sessions every year, going around around equality and, and education. And so and there's a few, quite a few other bits of education that we do on a, on one other extreme. I won't give you all the examples, but another one is a fan education program. So if someone's amenable, if someone has committed a sort of you know a discrimination offence inside a club, and then but they're, they're someone who's amenable to being educated rather than them being banned. You know, maybe they can be suspended and they come back by then going through this program to work out so that they can understand the impact of their behavior. And as an example, you know, one of them would be when Will Sahar during lockdown was abused on social media before a game at Aston Villa. And it's a really interesting case because lots of the instant reaction is you know, we should ban them, they're a racist, they're this, they're that. Well, it turns out it's a 12-year-old kid and we're not quite sure, potentially, possibly borderline autistic. And so, you know, should we be leaping to judgment until we know the facts and we know the person? If it is a career racist, then it's, you know, and this is part of the challenge. We automatically make these assumptions that when someone does something, that they're a career racist and sometimes they're just not. They are actually capable of being educated and you can't ban your way completely out of these things so much better having some kind of fan education program having conversations then you turn that person into a convert for 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 inclusion and understand so they they don't it isn't just about punishment it isn't just about banning and then the sort of voice stuff that we do really is around the campaigning the transparency reporting that we're trying to do much more data driven the big policy stuff we do is, you know, enormous amount of work over the last few years on on online abuse 
um, both working with the social media companies, but also working with the government around the, the online safety bill. Um, and some of the big policy things like, well, what do we what do we do about South Asian inclusion on the pitch? And so, you know, we've got some stuff that we're going to talk about that in, that in, a, in a few weeks' time um, uh, and some plans around that. So, and, and then we're also starting to look at other sports. Uh, part of the partnership with Sky was to, to at some point explore other sports. And so we've been we've been funded by both Sky and the ECB to explore working in cricket. And so I spent quite a bit of time recently talking to Azim Rafiq and we we're putting together a little programme just to figure out what might we be able to do to help in, in cricket as well. Just just on the cricket side, I mean the Azim Rafiq cases has been absolutely extraordinary and I think a lot of us just didn't realise the issues in terms of racing around cricket. You associate it so much with football that you just think cricket, it just, you know, because Asian, unlike football, a, you know, cricket is so, such a strong part of, of the Asian community in this country as well. There have been Asian cricketers. It is such a, just such an ingrained part of the culture. So to discover there are Asian cricketers at county sides across the country suffering a sort of racist level, just well, racist abuse at all, but even the level, specifically the levels Azim was and his teammates at Yorkshire were, were experiencing. I mean, did it did it come as a shock to you? And working with Azim, how, how, how has it enlightened you in any way? Or, I mean, it's just it been an extraordinary case, I think. It, it didn't it didn't come as a sh- shock and I've been you know lucky to have a couple of conversations with him so in recent times actually I've got one with him later on this week on a on a on a on a on a conference that we're doing and um it didn't come as a shock I suppose what has been what was maybe slightly surprising is that it's come as a shock to other people mm, has to me I have to be uh, right, hands up yeah it's like you know and there's this what's great in so many ways it's incredibly courageous what he did. And but it's also shining a light on the truth and the reality of not just the experience, but also the numbers, right? Because the numbers, there's this sort of lazy stereotype that, yeah, well, South Asians aren't good at football, but you've made loads of inroads in cricket. And you kind of go, well, have we? Where does your data tell you that we have? Yeah, we participate a lot in cricket. There's something like 30% of grassroots participants in, in cricket are from the South Asian community still less than 5% of the professionals. So, you know, there's that kind of anomaly with black players making it into coaching in football, and we think that's outrageous. And yet we think it's normal for South Asians to have that drop-off between grassroots and elite in playing in football. Mm. Well, they're both completely wrong. They're both massively underrepresented. So... You know, he's done an amazing service in highlighting these issues and enabling these conversations to take place. Yeah, I think my attitude on it is almost, I mean, it's kind of a silly one, really, but it's almost like, how dare you racially abuse an Asian cricketer? It's our sport, mate. You know, it's like, it's like, you know, don't, you know, in football, like, yeah, I don't know, there's that disconnect. I'm not saying that excuses any racism in football, but in cricket, it's like, how dare you racially abuse? It's our sport, mate. You know, we're, we're the best at it. We play it. India, the religion, like, I, I just found it, yeah. I'm, I'm the biggest like, source of money. Like, you know, in India is the biggest source of money. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, it's yeah, no, absolutely. Um, just you talked about the funding. I mean, correct me if I'm wrong. As you say, Sky have become a partner as well. I think the rest of Kick It Out's funding comes from the Premier League, the FA, and the PFA. And there has been, I think, the Guardian. Daniel Taylor used to work for us. Did a lot. Did some reporting on this that Kick It Out has always felt, and he's shown the figures for that. It just doesn't get enough funding, or certainly should get more. Um, I think maybe that's why you branched out to Sky as well. I mean, 
it might be difficult for you to answer this, but do you feel the levels of funding kick out are get from those organisations, given the money that is swilling around in English football, is at the levels it should be? Would you like more? And if you got more, what do you feel? Do you feel there's that, that, that little bit extra, maybe more, a lot more you could do with it as well and more you could achieve? Oh, I'm, I'm chair of a charity. You ask any chair of any charity, so could they do more if they were given more money? They'll yeah. say yes. And I'd say yes, we can. And yes, have we been underfunded? Yes. But also, look, because I came come at it from a commercial background, I always say, well, right, I've got to make the case. And I'm now making the case. Here are the things. Have a governance review, better strategy review, really clear on who our beneficiaries are, really clear on what we want to do in terms of voice, skills, talent, the programmes that we want to run, where we think we can add value. And so now we're kind of going back to football and saying, it's time for you to invest. It's time for you to invest more because we're demonstrating what we think we can deliver. And actually, here's a proof point because when we shared that vision with Sky, they instantly invested three million over a three-year period. And so that's what we're going back to football and to, to other sponsors. I don't want it to be, I think football should be the core of our investment because it's a football challenge in the same way that when we go into the ECB, we're saying, look, we're, our role is to be independent and to provide both support and challenge because we are also there to hold you to account. So we will be completely independent, but it's your problem. So you need to part fund it. We might also fund it elsewhere and to maintain our independence even more, we will get third party funding from commercial organisations. But, I'm, you know, I come from a commercial background. I can, we'll do that. That'll be fine. But actually the heart, you still need to be at the heart of it because you need, you need to feel like you've got a degree of ownership on it. It's exactly the same in football, really. That's that's really the kind of, I suppose, the, the heart of how we're approaching it and the heart of how I'm approaching it. And, yeah, yes, we want more money is the answer. And, yes, we think football should invest more. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I, I, fully, I fully support that. Give kick out as much money as possible because I think um, you guys are absolutely essential. Um, fantastic stuff, Sanjay. Right. Let's have a chat about Manchester United then in a little bit more detail. Um, I've got to say, as a Liverpool fan, I'm finding what's going on at your club at the moment absolutely hilarious. It's brilliant. <laughs> um, it's weird, actually, because, I mean, I grew up in the 90s where you guys essentially were sort of ruining my life on a daily basis. And when it all started to fall apart under, first of all, sort of Dave, you know, once Fergie left and David Moyes took over and it started to fall apart, you know, United losing games for me as, as a Liverpool fan, I think the non-Liverpool fans also grew up during that period or just people who were watching football during the 90s and most of the noughties, it was like, oh my God, Man United, they've lost Man United, aren't winning trophies. When you guys, for instance, recently went out in the Champions League to Atletico Madrid, I think it was last week, wasn't it? The week before we were yeah. recording. I, you know, five or six years ago, I would have been dancing around my uh, my uh, living room. Now I just sort of sh- shrugged my shoulders. I mean, it's coming up to 10 years since you won the league. I think it's four or five years since you won a trophy. Um sort of did you did you see this drop off coming when Fergie left in in 2013 when Sir Ferguson retired in 2013 and are you sort of feeling United are entering the period where I guess Liverpool were in the 90s where you always kind of feel the title is around the corner you're, you're gonna, you'll win it soon but actually as I said it's coming up to a decade since you won the league you are um and I won't I'll, I'll try not to smile while I say this it feels like you are entering a real pit of mediocrity <laughs> I couldn't stop laughing there um it's just a kind of depressing time for United isn't it the drop off has been pretty stark since since Ferguson left you know what it's 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 quite ironic isn't it the two most successful clubs in the history of English football Liverpool and Man United and yet there's never seems to have been a period because there's every, every in every era there are two dominant sides you know normally. yeah so you're in the era of City and Liverpool and to agree City Liverpool and Chelsea and the last 20 years has really been or the last 15 years really been Chelsea and Chelsea and City 
But there's never been a period in the history of football where Liverpool and Man United have been those two together. It's a good they're point. It's a really good... They've been always showing. It's always yeah. like one's passing the baton over yeah. to the other, and the other one's really mediocre. So we're, you know, the way you're feeling about United now is the way I felt about Liverpool in the nineties, having watched Liverpool win everything in the seventies, yeah. you know, and then you start off, you're quite happy that Liverpool are losing games, and you know, you have the four-four draw against Everton and all that kind of stuff, and you. You see them lose against Palace in the semi-final of the cup. You start seeing all oh, the, the empires beginning to crumble. There's the Bristol uh, City in the FA Cup in '94. And then, and then yeah, you get to the sort of uh, you know the, the the Roy Hodgson eras, and it's like yeah, it's kind of normal now. I don't yeah, yeah, exactly. pleasure from it. It's just you're an irrelevance, and I think for Liverpool fans, Man United are an irrelevance. You know, it's never be a complete irrelevance because it's still that that big game and it's still the historic rivalry. Um, did he say? I, look, we all I think everyone could see that there was going to be a fall coming once Fergie left, but I don't think anyone could have anticipated quite the fall. I think there's there's just not the structure there for success, in my sense, and and there was a lot probably to do. You know, one of the advantages of having an amazing manager like Ferguson was that he was all over everything. But your strength is your weakness, and that was also his weakness, and the weakness of the club was it was so dependent on him. So that once he went, because he had that encyclopedic knowledge of everybody and everything that went on at the club, you lost that. He was the glue, and so you have you can't you have to replace that with systems. I think you know, I don't think they've kind of got systems to replace that, and I don't think they've got the decision making to me seems to be always seems to be really slow. I know we had a pandemic, but should it really? If, did it really take you 18 months to sign Jaden Sancho when you do sign him? When you, you know, if you decided the previous summer you weren't going to sign him, surely you sign him first day of the following transfer window. You don't wait till that's nearly over. And then you have but a plan for him as well. It just doesn't seem have, like there was. Yeah. And you have it's a plan crazy. for him. And you have a plan for the, Liverpool have demonstrated that you can remain competitive without being the richest club in the league. Mm. And demonstrate that the, the model is there for us. It's if you've got a strategy, an idea of the kinds of players you should be buying. And actually what we've become is a bit like Chelsea before Abramovich, which is a retirement home for players. You know, Chelsea before Abramovich, they were successful. They had some cups and, and some cup finals. But it was a place where Desailly and Deschamps yeah. and Viali went to end their careers. And for us, that's... That's a great comparison. And yeah, yeah, yeah. It, and, but how many... You know, it's almost like a, we're like the pain shop Galacticos, right? <laughs> <laughs> so, but who's actually ever won from a policy of Galacticos? Even Real Madrid, they won Champions Leagues. How many times did they win the league? Yeah. But actually, I don't think they won any. Well, and sorry, the Galacticos era. It's interesting you say that. They sort of won in sort of. The, they actually won. I think only one really in that era, which was two thousand and two. Yeah. Then they had years without it. And when they started winning the European Cup on a regular basis, it was post Galacticos really. Ronaldo was there, but it was actually because they had Modric and Cruz in midfield. Who okay, they're both sort of superstars to an extent, but they're they're not the mad team of the mid early noughties. That was because that team had structure and genuine talent in it. Although, although it was, yeah, you had Bale, Benzema, Cristiano, yeah, Cruz, yeah, yeah. Varane, you know, so they, they bought big players. But actually, I think they won the league, what, once, maybe twice? And Barcelona were winning the league yeah. year, and Atletico I think, won it once or twice. But but they were great in cups. They were a cup team, and the Champions League was a cup competition. Yeah, so true. Yeah. They, win, they win the Champions League. But, you know, the teams that win leagues, you don't buy, in my opinion, you don't buy stars. You buy t- you buy talent and you build stars, and that's mm. what Klopp's doing. That's what Guardiola's done. Um, 
I think it's incredibly hard to buy success by just buying stars. And I think United have been trying to buy stars. It's in maybe it's the marketing that that they it sells more advertising. It sells more sponsors if you've got uh, a Cristiano Ronaldo. But did we really need him? I think we needed him. I think oh. we needed we needed a central midfielder. Um, uh, and we haven't really got a strategy for how we're going to attack the game. Are we a pressing team? Are we not a pressing team? Are we sit back? Very hard to be a pressing team with De Gea and Maguire. You know, Maguire's so slow on the turn and De Gea, you know, you look how good Liverpool and City are. Actually, part of that is because they can defend really high up the pitch because mm. they've got good centre-halves and also the, the keepers can play. Yeah. Day doesn't come off his line, does he? He's a great keeper, but he doesn't come off his goal line, does he? Yeah. He just didn't come out the six yard area. <laughs> he, he has, he has, you watch, he has great seasons when United have terrible seasons. The one or two seasons where United have had good seasons, he's not had good seasons. Yeah, that's a good point. Yeah. See where we finished third and second, he didn't have good seasons. So I think the weaknesses in his game get exposed. And so it all comes back to. Have you got a strategy? Have you got a structure that enables you to deliver on that strategy? And and then, you know, you recruit in, in line with that. And mm. We're all over the place. No, absolutely. Absolutely. Long mate, continue. Um, but talking about a period which was amazing for you guys was obviously the Alex Ferguson years. I mean, the level of success you had in that period was absolutely absurd. 13 titles, five FA Cups, four League Cups, two European Cups. And of course, in 1999, the treble. Um, you had Andy Goldstein, who's a TalkSport presenter, fellow Man United fan on this um, podcast a, a little while ago. I think exactly a year ago, actually, it was March in 2021. And I asked him if if all that winning during the 90s and, and the early noughties just kind of got bored, whether, obviously it's great, but whether you maybe A, took it for granted, whether there was a sense of entitlement crept into the fan base and the challenge was lost a bit because growing up during that period, it just felt like you guys won every week. You didn't obviously, but it just felt like what certainly felt the case was when you played any team in the kind of middle of the Premier League stroke, the bottom, you know, your Derby counties, your Aston Villas, your Sunderlands, it just felt like you'd, you'd, you'd beat them. It wasn't a case of whether you'd win. It was just by by how much. I mean, that period, I think you said earlier, the 90s was when you started going, got your season ticket and were going regularly. I mean, I guess the early years were just absolutely thrilling, but was it even a period and maybe maybe the early naughty specifically where it was a little bit sort of shrug your shoulders? Yeah, well, we'll just win today and I'll just go home and the edge was lost a little bit. Yeah, I think I think you do because you get you get complacent and you get used to success. And and you know, I'm sure City fans and City will have that a little bit now because they've been there for so long and they're playing, you know, they're they're in that position where they turn up and they can yeah. be every team is one or two really competitive matches uh, and to a degree Liverpool as well because they're, they're both those two teams are really setting the setting the, setting the standard but you know after City have had those years of winning lots and lots and lots of, of, of Premier League titles uh, so yeah there is a degree of that and look, I don't think there's anything as exciting as when your team's on the rise it would have been the same for you a few years ago as you mm-hmm. were on the rise under Klopp and for Spurs under Pochettino I think that period when you know, we're starting to feel like they, you know, how he ever got them to a Champions League final and two years without signing a player I don't mean I just, I, how, how does that even happen yeah. but that feeling for a club that's not done anything for you so it's really weird from the most memorable matches for me of that of that of the, all those successful periods, it's, it's not so much. Oh, uh, yeah, I was at the new camp in, in 99 and all those, you know, the cup final and the Spurs game when they won the league and going for the treble and stuff like that. 
But still, my favourite game was an away game at Palace in 1993 in April because um, we'd lost the league the year before. You know, the Mark Walters and Ian Rush scoring at yeah. hand, the nail in the coffin and the hand of the title to Leeds. But all through that following season, we didn't say anything about winning the league. And then we got to that April, got to that away match. Villa kicked off three quarters of an hour before us, losing at Blackburn. We were nil-nil at half-time and then... Uh, Paul Linson Marquis scored in the second half. And for the first time, I thought, yeah, first time in my life, <laughs> I'm actually going to see my team win the league. This is all I want is to see my team win the league because all I've seen is Liverpool win the league. Mm. <laughs> all my childhood, I just want to see my team win the league. We're going to win the league. And on that train journey back from Sellers Park into London, all the fans for the first time ever, that's for the first time that season, the fans singing, we're going to win the league. We're going to win the league. There's the team captain, Bruce, with the header. Cantona! Hughes on the far side making ground. So is Giggs. And they're appealing. And it's been smashed in. Hughes! Mark Hughes! A fantastic volley. The deep cross took them all out. Cantona it's in a good position but how well found there and he's gone to the right away from Lee Marker it's yes that's it 2-0 and all over certainly tonight maybe the championship who knows it's a score for Manchester United to seal a fine second half performance and how well that move was worked so much credit to McClare and left the space Prince to go wide of Newman and then cut the shot back across the goalkeeper but I doubt whether any goal that he's got certainly for Manchester United has given him as much pleasure as that it came in the 45th minute of the second half and the crowd at the left hand end are celebrating as they deserve to do won it before we next played because Villa lost their next game uh, against Oldham uh, and so we, we then played the Monday night against Blackburn those are the moments you remember because you're on the rise yeah. nothing like that feeling as a fan going the hope and you're not quite sure you know mm. what goes when you become successful is the jeopardy's gone yeah you go right, we turn up and I'm going to win this and so, so when we rise again, eventually, as we will, because these things go in cycles again, that feeling will be will be great. Yeah. You, just, you know, as a fan, you just hope you're around for the next one because you never you're never sure when it's coming. Yeah. No, I can. Obviously, I'm not a United fan, but I can sort of really empathise with that. I always think when I look at this sort of the various eras you've had, I just. Obviously, the treble team is iconic and, you know, arguably, I think, probably the greatest English club side there's ever been. But I look at those, those the sort of the Kanchelskis in Cantona yeah. team and I just, in that kit with the with the sort of the laces around the collar, and yeah. I just think it must have been so thrilling to follow United around that time. The team was playing amazing, quick, fast, aggressive, attacking football. And as I said, you were on the rise. The excitement you must have had around 93 yeah. must be incredible. And that, did you go to the Blackburn Monday night game? That yeah, must yeah, be a really yeah. special anyway. night. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 
tough players as well at that to be honest. I was in that season because we were rebuilding Stratford and I was I was on the on the terrace. What's now this? We used to be called the, the schoolboy paddock, the schoolboy paddock behind behind the right hand goal opposite the Stratford end because that's where for the whole of that season I, I was I was stood there. So um, yeah, when um, yeah, the, the, it was a, an amazing an amazing evening. Uh, you know, after all of those years, yeah, uh, and the noise and the atmosphere. And then you get that you get those nights at every big club. You know, they're just really memorable. Those kinds of things. We had a semi final against Barcelona in in two thousand and eight as well. Very, 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 very similar. So um, yeah, I don't think they're the. That's that's the reason you're a football fan, isn't it? For some of those moments, yeah, <laughs> yeah. you remember. No, absolutely, absolutely. It's, it stings me a lot, but I, I can absolutely empathise with how magical those moments must have been. Um, brilliant. Sandra, you've been absolutely brilliant. Before I let you go, I'm going to do the couple of usual things I do at the end of this podcast. And the first thing is to go through your all-time Manchester United eleven. So anyone who's not listened to this podcast before, I ask um, guests who come on to pick a, to pick a team based on uh, an all-time team based on the best 11 players they've seen play for their club during their time supporting their club. And, and Sanjay is... Uh, kindly provide an all-time Man United eleven, so I'll go through it and then we can have a little chat about it so it's in a 4-3-3 formation Peter Schmeichel in goal back four Gary Neville Rio Ferdinand Yap Stam and Dennis Irwin midfield three of Brian Robson Roy Keane and Paul Scholes and up front Cristiano Ronaldo Eric Cantona and Ryan Giggs um, often with these teams, you know, you can kind of go, oh, why have you picked him? Why have you picked him? I mean, I just can't find any arguments with your team. It's just 11 absolutely brilliant players. And you've got Eric Cantona um, as your as your centre forward. Um, I'll put my hands up and I'll say he's just one of my all-time favourite footballers. I've actually met him a couple of times. One thing I think people don't quite uh, know about Cantona, you probably do, obviously, your time sport United, you've probably met him as well. He is absolutely massive. I don't think I ever really came across TV. He is enormous. Uh, he's a big, big man. Obviously, big personality. Um, yeah, it's just hard to argue with your team. It's just a great team. Did it? Was there anyone who just missed out? Oh, loads of people who just missed out. You know, if we did it purely on the quality of the players, you might, you might pick Wayne Rooney or Van Nistelrooy instead of instead of Cantona. Right? Well, can I just say, really interesting. Sorry, to, uh, really interesting. You say that because Andy Goldstein also picked his uh, Man United all time eleven. And I'll just go through it and we'll compare yeah. it and you can comment if you want. So his was a 4-4-2 formation. Yeah. He had Michael in goal like you. He's back for just one difference. So he had Gary Neville right back, Dennis Irwin left back. You both got Rio Ferdinand centre back, but he went with Nemanja Vidic as his other centre back. He's got midfield four then, Ronaldo and Giggs, so sort of similar to yours. Brian Robson in there as well, which I think is one of those places for people of United fans of a certain age. He's just, you know, iconic. He's a bit before my time, but fully appreciate how important he was controversially no Roy Keane he's got Paul Scholes next to him and then just on what you're saying his front two is Wayne Rooney and Ruud van Nistelrooy he left out Cantona yeah and so it's so it's so hard to choose a team yeah. Roy Keane was actually the best passer of the football I ever saw I was just think you know people always talked about Paul Scholes I mean his passing because he'd always put the glamorous passing but it was in the days before you really started collecting obsessively pass percentage statistics, but I always felt that Keane was the heartbeat of United. You know, he mm. would just always keep the ball and it was just such a skill. Um, Stam rather than Village, I thought Stam was a little bit better with the ball. I thought Stam was incredible. I thought he's just one of the best centre-backs I've ever seen. I thought it's absolutely yeah. extraordinary. Only had him for a few years. Yeah, mm. possibly Rooney. Van Nistel was the best finisher at United ever I've seen in my time. Um 
and, and Rooney an incredible player. It's just Cantona because he was the catalyst and without him, I don't think we'd be the club that we were for then 20 years thereafter. And there's a magic about him. There's just a sort of, you know, I, I always think for one of the things for, for United is you've got to have a bit of charisma, uh, 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 both you know from a player, but also as a, as, a, as a manager as well. And so I think it's one of those things they should be thinking about when they're hiring the new manager. Actually, you've got to be quite a big personality to be able to take on this club and the attention. And some people rise with it. And Canton was one of those people, he thrived on it, absolutely thrived on it. And so... One of very few players, I think, in my life, you think pretty much every fan just loved him. But yeah, there were players that I've got a list of players I couldn't include, like from Rooney. Beckham was a, was you know very, I think, very underrated as a as a as you know. But Andre Kanchelskis, I absolutely loved. And I wanted to, I remember the excitement of seeing him away an away game at Palace in the early nineties, one of his first games for us, and it was just the speed of him. Uh, Mark Hughes, particularly in his first time at United, um, when he first burst onto the scene in the 80s. I miss that Norman Whiteside, who was one of my heroes in the in the 80s. And then, you know, going back to when I was watching as a kid, sort of my very first hero was probably Gordon Hill, and then Jimmy Greenoff, who I absolutely loved, again, probably before time, a lot of people, he was like the uh, he was like the the Mark Hughes of his time, he was an incredible volume of the ball. Um, and I, I met him doing the the rounds at United, and he tells a brilliant story of how he joined United from Stoke City. Uh, <laughs> if you've never heard, it's a it's a great story. Uh, Hell yeah, I'd love to hear it. No, he was he, Jimmy Greenoff was was captain of that Stoke City team in the early seventies. That I think they got to the League Cup final. I'm not sure if they won it. Maybe they won it, but they were you know they were going for the League title. They were a brilliant team, and. Uh, uh, they had a storm. In yeah, actually, I should know this. Yeah, carry on. Yeah, it's a great tale. Yeah, and the, yeah. And the, the roof of the stand blew off. And this is a story I was told to me at least three times by Jimmy Greenhop. <laughs> and he said, uh, and Tony Waddington, who was the legendary coach of Stoke, got, got him in and said, oh, Jimmy, we've had a bit of a problem. The, the, the stand's blown off. We're not insured. We're going to have to sell you. Oh, I don't want to go on, you know, we've got a great team on captain. We're going for the title. We've been doing well in the Cups. I really don't want to leave this team. He goes, uh, it's Man United. He said, where do I sign? <laughs> <laughs> and he was, he, was, he was a hero for United, not least because he always scored against Liverpool. Uh, yeah. 77 Cup final, 79 semi-final. And then he had a massive injury. He was out for about a year and a half. Came back and scored the winner at Old Trafford against Liverpool. He was like, all United fans love him, not just because he scored goals against Liverpool, but he was also a great player. It was your Danny Murphy, who we love purely because yeah, he's against Man United. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That Jimmy Greenoff story. Yeah, I, I think I heard Nick Hancock, who's a obviously yeah. presenter and comedian, and he's a big Stoke fan. I remember him on a podcast recently. I think talking. He basically said the reason sort of Stoke had a massive drop off in the as you said in the sort of seventies, and it was because we had a storm and we had to sell. <laughs> we weren't insured. The roof blew off the, at the ground, and we had to. We weren't insured, that we had to sell loads of players. He goes, it was basically a storm was the reason behind Stoke's downfall. He probably had a slight tongue in cheek when he said it, but. Uh, yeah, no, it's a great tale. Um, Sanjo, it's brilliant. As I said, hard to argue with your team. Andy's team is great. Andy Goldstein's team is great. Your team's great. You know, I just got loads of great players. You can mix and match them and you just end up with a brilliant 11. So uh, personally, I would always have Cantona in there. Just, yeah, he's iconic for me as well. Um, and I say that as a Liverpool fan. Um, brilliant. 
before I let you go, you've been absolutely brilliant, Sanjay. I'm going to ask you a final question. Now, I'm going to change it for you. There's, um, there is a usual final question, but I, I just want to adapt it slightly specifically for you. So what I normally ask is if you can go back in, and you can answer this question as well if you want, so feel free. The normal final question is if you can go back in time and change one moment from your time supporting your club up to now, and it can be sort of absolutely anything, um, you know, a, a game, a transfer, a personal moment, um, a goal, whatever, what would you choose? You can answer that if you want. I'd, I'd love to answer, hear your Man United-related answer. But I do also want to ask you a bit more specifically, if you could achieve one thing as, as chair of Kick It Out between, you know, now and when you decide to, retire and put your slippers on and, and grab your pipe and, and relax what would it be and it can be realistic or you know you can let your imagination run wild and it can be incredibly unrealistic but yeah what would you love to achieve in your role at kick it out and if you want to answer the united question as well you can answer that as well yeah there's, there's so so much in the in the role of kick it out and i think we've been trying to consciously change the tone of voice of the organization and to be focused on solutions, I think I would like us to be remembered for, as the organisation that solved problems, not just told you what the problems were. Mm. And that's the shift from trying to kind of move to, because look, whenever there are challenges and problems in life, people can be either critics or contributors. And it's easy to be a critic, because we can all pick out what's wrong with the world. It's really hard to be creative and to be a contributor and to create solutions. And I want us focused on solutions. And I would love for people to think, I'll go to them because I can get, I'll get a solution. And that's what I want, you know, because there's always going to be a problem. It's how you answer them and getting the, getting the, getting the, the, the solutions, not just identifying the problems. Uh, I think in terms of the other question, um, the one that got away, Paul Gascoigne. I'd love to see Paul Gascoigne. Yeah. I think, you know, and I know we nearly signed it, but and look, you always end up with where you end up with the right with the right players. And we didn't sign David Hurst, so we got Eric Cantona. Look, you know, sometimes sometimes these things work in your favour. Uh, I would love to see Paul Gascoigne play for Man United. I think yeah. he's probably the most talented English player I've ever seen. He was close, wasn't he, as well? Obviously, Fergie, Fergie wanted him just before we went to Spurs. It was in 88, I think. And I think he was basically signed and then Venables put in, Terry Venables put in a late call and swoop. But yeah, I mean, God, Gazza at United. I mean, I don't know who would have kept out in your sort of team in the early 90s, but what, him and maybe Keane in midfield, Ince competing, I don't know. But God, that, that, yeah, that would, him under, I know it's, it's a bit of a cliche because people say it wouldn't have made that much difference for Gascoigne was Gascoigne, but you do feel if Fergie had control of him. His career might have turned out very different. Yeah, it would have been a sensational signing for you. For, for him and for the club, I think, as well. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Um, he's, he, if ever a player was born to play for Man United, like I said, the swagger. Mm. I mean, the, that's the thing. It's, a, it's the same thing with, with Cantona. I think that's the... the bit, there's something a bit special uh, um, that's required to be a, a star at United. Yeah. No, Canton and Gascoigne in the same team. Even though I might have had to have liked you guys a little bit in the 90s if you had both of them in your team. <laughs> Maybe. I don't know. I don't know about that. Um, Sanjay Bandari, you've been absolutely brilliant. Thank you very much for your time. No problem. Thanks for inviting me.